T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 807 down to 10 degrees here in the Twin Cities. We'll have weather at the bottom of the hour, but right now it's time for one of my favorite guests. Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University, how are you this evening? I am doing very well and bracing for the cold like everybody else. I know. It's just insane. It it seems like it's absolutely crazy. I mean, it's going to go down, 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 down. Uh, starting just about now. <laughs> That's right. I mean, and good gravy. It's March. It's supposed to I know. start warming up. Good gravy is right. Uh, all right. We have so much to talk about, as always. Um, we want to get to the Michael Cohen situation, the breakdown of the North Korea talks, perhaps the legislature as well. But a couple of Minnesota politicians just in the news today. First of all, right now, we do not have a read on this yet, but the Gridiron Dinner, which is a big deal in Washington, D.C., all of the top journalists are there, the president is there, and one of the featured speakers is Amy Klobuchar. She was invited there because she is she can be, despite the recent press accounts of, of her being – of her alleged abuse of her staff, she can be very, very funny – and she spoke to this group in 2013, and it was a huge hit. I mean, it, it really – she did incredibly well. Uh, Barack Obama, the president then, uh, referring to her as – or referring to Al Franken as the second funniest senator from Minnesota because Klobuchar was so good. How big a deal is this for Klobuchar to do well tonight? She has to do very well um, in terms of turning the um, the media accounts around for her because she's been taking, I think, a pretty significant hit in the national media, New York Times, Washington Post, and so forth, um, about her her management style and also, I think, a couple of other issues in terms of her record as a prosecutor. And so I think it's going to be important for her to be able to turn this around, get the good press relations that she had again, and hopefully use that as a springboard for helping her increase her name recognition. Because, again, if we look at recent polls among Democrats, she's still, I'd say, hovering fairly far back in the polls compared to many of the other candidates. Kamala Harris. That's right, exactly. Cory Booker. Yeah, correct. Correct. Um, Does does she have to – I mean, I I think she has to do some self-deprecating jokes, including going into the, you know, co-meeting salad. I mean, I think, I think she's got to go there. Well, I think so, too. I think she has to figure out a way of diffusing all the criticisms with humor. And anywhere from the comb to the, again, st- you know, management style to a lot of different things, she needs to do that in a way um, that, as I always say, sometimes politicians need to take a pie in the face to sort of show that they can, they can laugh things off. And I think that helps. It'll help her in terms of turning around some of the press but that still may not be enough to, to sort of realign her campaign. But it's clearly a first start because I think in the, what, two weeks now, is it two, only been two weeks since she declared, I think it is, two weeks since she declared her candidacy, I think it's been a rocky two weeks for her. Right. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is, it is two weeks that, that since she's declared. 
And I do think that this is important. I agree with you. And I think she's going to have to go, as I said, right into this <laughs> eating your eating your salad with your comb and, and just really kind of give it to herself. Yeah. And I think that that's her only pathway here. And I think she needs to do that. And as I said, she can be very, very witty. She's got a very good sense of humor. But she needs to right this ship if she has a chance because you're right, she is trailing. Kamala Harris is, is really – a great been great out of the gate, and even Beta O'Rourke, who has not even announced yet, is ahead of Amy Klobuchar in the polls. You're absolutely right, and then of course Bernie Sanders is is either the front runner or second, depending on the polls that you look at. And if you look at the other important poll, which is the fundraising poll, she got off doing very well. But I don't know if you've noticed, you know, after the first couple of days, she stopped giving accounts of fundraising, which suggests to me that it trailed off very rapidly, very quickly. And those reports came out very rapidly and very quickly. And and, and the, the problem is they haven't been isolated. You know, it started with BuzzFeed, so maybe you could dismiss that, but then it's the New York Times, it's the Washington Post. It's mainstream media that, that is going there, and it's uh, it's been tough for her. So I, I agree with you. On that, uh, the other uh, Minnesota representative who's making national headlines is, of course, Ilhan Omar with a, an horrific poster. Whatever you want to think of Representative Omar, uh, a poster that was displayed uh, in the West Virginia legislature or at a booth near there, uh, suggesting that she was involved in 9/11. Uh, completely reprehensible, but it, it certainly indicates what a, an extraordinary lightning rod this representative is nationwide. Yes, and she's under an incredible scrutiny at this point. I think it seems that every speech, every comment that she makes, she's now being watched. Um, And the latest account that comes out today uh, is in terms of comments that she made. Again, whether the context is completely accurate, we don't know. But sort of asserting that uh, people who are Jewish um, um, may have divided loyalties between the United States and Israel and there was a sense in which some say it was anti-Semitic. I actually might say that if her comments are construed um, in one way, it's less anti-Semitic and more questioning the loyalty uh, of people who are Jewish American in the United States. And this, I think, is um, continuing to get her in trouble um, with, um, with, with, with many people um, across the United States. And, and, you know, one of the things that's important about that 5th Congressional District, which you know, I think people think of the 5th Congressional District and they think, oh, just Minneapolis. And it's not just Minneapolis. It includes, you know, the inner ring suburbs of Golden Valley, St. Louis Park, uh, parts of Edina. She represents, and the Jewish Community Relations Council told me this, she represents more Jews than any other Minnesota congressperson. Uh, and were synagogues. Mm-hmm. So she has a, a large, solid Jewish base. She won by 78 percentage points. Uh, so obviously there were a lot of Jewish people that did vote for her. But I don't think she can take that for granted. And I, I do think that she has to be careful. That being said, being careful, it, it, it is clear and her staff has told me that the kinds of uh, – that kind of poster that that was up there in West Virginia, that's something that her office deals with every single day uh, in in terms of more menacing comments and statements and phone calls that are really uh, of great concern to 
the representative and her staff. I mean, it's, it's a pretty serious situation, and it appears to be escalating. No, I think you're right. I think there's several things going on here. You know, one of them is the sense in which uh, she's facing enormous anti-Muslim um, sentiment across the United States and significant biases you know, because of her religion, probably perhaps also because of her nationality, and we have to concede that. I think she's also under enormous pressure because she's criticizing Israel. And, and there are lots of legitimate reasons to criticize Israel. To criticize yeah, Israel. Many, many people do, you that's know. Right. And, that's right. And so, 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 but it becomes difficult, um, I think, when you're Muslim um, to criticize um, is Israel much in the same way. If you're Jewish, it becomes very difficult to, let us say, criticize people who are Muslim. It's not supposed to matter who you are in terms of the cogency of your arguments, but unfortunately, sometimes it does um, in terms of who the speaker is. And I think so. she's facing, facing this difficulty here, and part of what she has going on as, a, as really an inexperienced member of Congress is understanding how to um, how to coach her language or how to right. raise her her questions or concerns in ways that um, I'll say are more diplomatic. Right, and and I I, I want to be clear about what what I was saying because I don't think I made that point very well. It, it, there are many people uh, who are critical of Israel's positions and stands and and, and criti- critical of America's foreign policy yeah. in terms of as it relates to the Middle East and as it relates to Israel. And and those are all legitimate opinions. You may not agree with them, but but those it, it's it is this is the United States of America. You have a right to disagree with with positions on foreign policy. I think it's the the way she said it has gotten her into trouble and it's uh I think that's that's part of the problem. That being said, I think you look at something that happened in West Virginia and and the anti-Muslim bias in this country is obviously strong, as is, on another note, the anti-Semitic bias in, in many areas. And it's it's so troubling that there can't be more common ground amongst these two people who find themselves in the crosshairs of so many others. Yeah, what I also think is, I'm not sure if the word is ironic or sorry, is the sense in which, um, again, where the two of them intersect. You remember the story right after the Republican National Convention in Minnesota back in 2008, John McCain is the nominee, and was speaking to a woman in Minnesota who accused Obama of being a Muslim. Um, I can't remember what the whole line was, and, and um, John McCain said no. Uh, he said he was disloyal. This woman said he's disloyal. Disloyal because he, he was a Muslim. Muslim right. And John McCain said no, he's a loyal, good American of whom I just happen to disagree with. And I thought that was an incredibly noble and accurate statement, that it is perfectly okay to be Muslim, um, and, which are, and Barack Obama is not Muslim. He's not but, Muslim, but, but of course. The, 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 woman, too. the woman mischaracterized that, but that's exactly what, what Senator McCain said. And it was and something he, that was played, you know, when he passed. I think that that, that moment from that debate here in Minnesota right. was, was played over and over again. And right. many people but, cited it as one but, of his great strengths. But to accuse somebody of being, let's say, Jewish and un-American because they support Israel – would be just the same as saying somebody is Muslim and or Arabic or Ethiopian or whatever, and therefore a ter- Somalian and therefore a terrorist. All of this is 
our, our stereotypes and are wrong. Um, and, and so it should be condemned on all sides of the story here. But again, still having said all of that, um, I think one of the things that um, Ilhan Omar hasn't learned yet um, is, is, again, how to, I'm going to say it again, diplomatically make her criticism and have her words be um, well chosen. This is, of course, maybe a double standard, given the fact that our President of the United States, um, far from his diplomatic, oftentimes in his choice of words. Right. And, and I'm not sure that some of her responses, she did respond on Twitter to the West Virginia situation, but I think she needs to be more forthcoming uh, in terms of her dealing with the press and, and talking about these issues because they're overwhelming her as, as a freshman member of Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and I think that's something that, that uh, you know, I did talk to her was in communication with her staff today and she's apparently out of the country. But uh, I, I think I think that's something that that is going to have to be watched and, and is very difficult as well. Well, listen, um, Professor David Schultz, we do have to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I'd like to wade into the whole Michael Cohen, uh, North Korea, this extraordinary week that, that saw the president, uh, you know, center stage on two very different stages, as, as it were. Uh, we'll be right back. You are listening to News Talk 830. It is 8.22 in the Twin Cities, temp down to 10 degrees. Chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. What is your take, uh, what was your take on the extraordinary testimony, the extraordinary spectacle of Michael Cohen testifying before that House committee earlier this week? I was going to say, your phrase spectacle is exactly what it was, that it was incredible theater, especially right off the bat, with that sort of opening, what, almost half-hour statement by Michael Cohen um, and his description of Donald Trump. Uh, I, th- I thought it was pretty dramatic. Um, but one of the things that also struck me about that hearing, even though I think there was some substantive stuff that was there, uh, I'm not sure how many people's minds it truly changed. Yes. And when I l- watched the reaction of the Democrats and the reaction of the Republicans there, uh, it, it looked entirely predictable for the reactions, and it looked like both sides were, were playing to the home crowds for the 6 o'clock news. Right. It's um, – I, I agree with you. I don't think it changed any minds. And if anything, I think it, it just pounded in that wedge even deeper mm-hmm. and harder and bigger and fatter in between the – you know, widening the partisan divide. I think so, too. And, and, and things that sort of struck me um, in terms of just the visuals before we get maybe to substance here is what was it, that one sign that just struck me as really juvenile, which was the liar, liar, pants on flyer, you know, sign that was behind, you know, one of the, um, you know, members of, of Republican members of Congress. And that just, that just seemed to me completely um, inappropriate, you know, to do something like that. Right. Um, it is um – you know, there were a couple of nuggets that I thought were, were really interesting. There was one question um, where he was asked, is there anything else out there that we don't know about that the president is, is being investigated for? And then I'm paraphrasing loosely. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, but I can't talk about it. The Southern District of New York is looking into it, which is that means the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. What was your thought about that? Well, I think that's interesting because I suspect there are several things 
that both Mueller and the Southern District of New York are investigating that we have no ideas about, you know, and and, and we can. So it's, it's not. It's that's not. Yeah, I, I mean, that was my take as well. Is like there's something more, and, yeah. and 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 it's not the Mueller. Maybe the Mueller probe is is not what the president should be concerned about. Right. You ought to be more worried about that in terms of the Southern District of New York, uh, where there may be something more damaging in terms of, of Trump's business dealings, and also to the extent to which if things are arising out of actions that are occurring in the state of New York, to what extent can that also be then turned over to, to the New York Attorney General? And I mention this because even if there are questions regarding whether or not a, a sitting president can be indicted you know, by a special prosecutor. Um, that question um, is less of an issue when we're looking at what a regular federal prosecutor and, more importantly, looking at a, a state attorney general or perhaps even the district attorney of, Ma- you know, of Manhattan County. And so these could be the far, far more damaging things um, or things that Trump has less insulation from in terms of legal liability or or preventing prosecution from occurring. You know, I'm so glad you brought up the issue of can a president, a sitting president, be indicted? Because I've heard it said sort of time and time again in all the analysis that they can't be. Is that true? Well, I actually have argued that... And 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 where is that coming from? What that's coming from is that there was originally back in 1973 um, um, during Watergate... The Justice Department made an argument that said that a sitting president can't be indicted, um, again repeating it in 74, which is why, among other things, for those of us who remember Watergate, when Richard Nixon was eventually named as an unindicted co-conspirator, there was a belief he couldn't be indicted. Again, when Kenneth Starr now was looking into into um, whether or not Bill Clinton could be indicted for committing perjury surrounding the Monica Lewinsky instance or uh, events. Um, uh, One conclusion was he couldn't be indicted, but um, another another memo written by a constitutional law scholar actually argued yes. Um, And I've actually made the same argument. I I looked at all the memos, all the memos that the Justice Department have put together and there's a really good argument that that even if back in 73 um, the Justice Department was correct that a sitting president couldn't be indicted, um, several cases, U.S. versus Nixon, where the court said that the needs of the criminal justice process outweigh any claims of executive privilege, and therefore Nixon had to turn over the Watergate tapes, okay. or in the 90s when, although it was a civil matter, when Bill Clinton said, well, he can't face a civil trial um, regarding sexual harassment um, from Paula Jones, the Supreme Court disagreed. So there's, there's lots of good arguments out there now that suggest that, in fact, a sitting president of the United States could actually be indicted. Okay. All right, because that's something that you do hear about, and, and you know, just just curious about that. So that that's, in, in, as far as you're concerned, from, from a constitutional law per, you know, perspective, that's not an absolute. Not an absolute. Okay. And even if a sitting president can't be indicted either by a special prosecutor or under federal law, um, why the Southern District of New York is critical is that that is a regular federal prosecutor, not a special prosecutor. And then B, um, again, um, all this ap- 
applies to, let's say, federal, federal constitutional law, and there is even less certainty, that's why I phrase it a different way, um, there's even a stronger argument to be made that perhaps a state would have the authority to indict a president of the United States. So let's say, again, we're purely speculating out there, in case anybody's thinking that we know anything, we don't. Let us say, for example, there is something arising regarding um, Trump's business dealings with Russians that perhaps violate New York state law. He could possibly be charged, um, again, by, let's say, the Manhattan um, borough, which is New York City, you know, Manhattan borough prosecutor, or by the attorney general of the state of New York. You know, obviously, those are all questions that that lie ahead. Um, There were a lot of things, though, in that hearing that I'd like to ask you about uh, coming up. But we do have to take a break for whether um, there were there were there was testimony regardless and apart from the Russia thing about the president allegedly lying about his assets or trying to get a loan. Things that that really um, you have to wonder What will come of those things, or are those the things that the Southern District of New York is looking at? But first, let's take a break. We need to give you some weather because it is going to be very, very cold this evening and for the next few days. 8.35 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. I thought some of the most interesting things about Michael Cohen's testimony were some of the stories that that didn't have to do with, uh, you know, Russia or, or the campaign uh, one story that that he had actually gotten a straw buyer to bid on uh, a portrait of himself at a fancy Hamptons charity auction to make sure that that portrait of him would get the highest bid of any portrait of anybody so he could claim and then he tweeted out, my portrait was pay- bought for the most money of any portrait at this charity auction. Yeah. And, and then that, then it was paid for by his own foundation, which is now defunct. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. I, I thought the stories about, and we've heard about this before, that he has inflated his wealth when it, it behooves him and, and makes him look good, like he wants to be you know, on the Forbes list of the richest Americans. But then when it comes to paying taxes, he you know, deflates his wealth. Uh, and including there was testimony that, that he actually misrepresented his assets in an effort to get loans – or inflated his assets in an effort to get a loan to buy the Buffalo Bills. He never did get that loan from Deutsche Bank. But you can't misstate your assets when you're getting a bank loan. You know, All of us who tried to get a mortgage know that. I mean what do you make of that? Well, it's true. I think at one point Cohen um, accused – Trump essentially a tax fraud also, but even for people who might want to dismiss Cohen, I think the one true thing that he said unequivocally is when he said that, guess what, Trump has a big ego, um, and so does Cohen have a big ego. It's really Clearly, clear. he has, clearly, I mean, Michael Cohen was, it, it, what, he threatened 500 people five by his own admission 500 times on behalf of Donald Trump. I mean, I, the whole thing was just, ugh. Yeah, there's, you're absolutely right. There's no question we're dealing with two big New York egos here at this point, and and for and Trump clearly is. And I think Cohen pointed this out in the beginning. You know that Trump can be, you know, can be vain, can be egotistical, and I think um, that that sort of came came out in some of those stories in terms of Trump wanting to be sure what that it's the highest price, you know, for the uh, for his portrait or or other stories that he was telling. And I think also some of his observations about Trump's, let's say, business dealings 
are consistent with many other sources which talk about how um, he, oftentimes he ranges from from being astute to also what? Somebody who's filed bankruptcy five times to somebody who, who, um, you know, who ranges in terms of um, being what your, your worst boss's nightmare or something like that. So was all, I think a lot of things came out in terms of trying to capture who Trump was as a person that in many ways um, resonate with a lot of the media accounts that we see out there. But the two things that struck me Two or three things that struck me the most interesting for the hearing were, were clearly, of course, you have to assess the credibility of Michael Cohen in terms of, yes, he was a person who's going to jail for lying to Congress. Yes. So, um, um, but he brought documentation with him. And I think that's important to look at. He brought check stubs and receipts. Um, and I think you have to look at paper trails in different ways with statements than you do just look at statements. And he had um, checks signed by Trump and Donald Trump Jr., which allegedly were part of the payoff scheme to Stormy Daniels. And if those documents are accurate, that connects a lot of paper trails. The other thing which I think has been circulating now as a result of Cohen's testimony was the tying in of Donald Trump um, to communications with WikiLeaks, um, knowledge of WikiLeaks, um, the WikiLeak uh, um, um, leaks, um, um, Roger Stone, and also the hacking of the DNC. And if all that's true, that goes a long way towards connecting the President of the United States to perhaps some aiding and abetting or working with um, with, with the Russians. Although... Michael Cohen did say that he did not witness any collusion, although he suspected it. But there were also, I mean, could could the president be in trouble for for lying? I mean, like versus saying he, he has told the special prosecutor apparently that he did, had no advance notice of WikiLeaks, uh, and that's according to Michael Cohen, that's not true. Is mm-hmm. that something that he could get in trouble for? If he did it under oath, then yes. Um, remember that Bill Clinton was impeached, although not convicted by the Senate, but he was impeached by the House of Representatives for what? Lying under oath. And perjury is a very, very serious federal crime. Inter- and and there, there were a number of other instances, allegations. But again, this is Michael Cohen, who, of course, was convicted of lying to Congress or pled guilty to lying to Congress. Right. Um, the other development here, the collapse, or the other big story for Donald Trump, the collapse of the talks uh, with Kim Jong-un, President Trump, you know, after the talks collapsed or during the process of it, saying he did not, uh, he believed uh, Kim Jong-un's version of the Otto Wambier death, of course, Otto Wambier, the the college student who went to Korea and was, or North Korea, and was arrested and tortured and eventually died. after being tortured for almost two years in, in North Korean prisons, uh, that has prompted a great deal of outrage as well. But this doesn't seem to be anything that – I mean this kind of thing is something that, that has happened with the president before, and it hasn't really hurt him. No, you're absolutely correct. The number of times as candidate Trump, probably you and I and others talked about how comments about John McCain, about women, about immigrants – thinking it was going to sink him. It didn't. Um, this may not sink him also, but it is kind of troubling where 
where he seems to be willing to take the word of what, by most accounts, people would say is one of the most repressive um, um, and probably villainous um, dictators in the world, when he said, oh, um, I didn't know anything about what my regime, over which I am, what, a dictator and have control over it. Soul um, control. That's soul control. I had no idea what was going on. Um, that, that, that strains the credibility that's there. Um, and so, um, so I, I'm not sure that's the kind of um, statement you expect from the United States. It ought to be what? Um, from the President of the United States, it ought to be what supporting U.S. citizens. It ought to be condemning um, him for um, the North Korean president or par- uh, party secretary for what for for abusing the human rights of an American. All right, uh, chatting here with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to break down some of the things that are happening with the Minnesota legislature, including two bills that came out of a House committee. For gun control, it's the farthest they've ever gotten. Can they pass the entire legislature, though? We'll ask Professor David Schultz after this. 844 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you for a few more minutes along with Professor David Schultz. We are talking about the Minnesota legislature. Uh, Some big happenings there for years. Efforts at gun control have gone nowhere in the Minnesota legislature. Then this week, two bills actually made it out of a committee both the same committee, one bill, universal background checks, the second bill, a red flag law. Are you surprised by that, David Schultz? I'm not surprised by the fact, given that the Democrats um, very strongly ran on um, issues of trying to address gun violence and specifically ran on, on the universal background checks issue and efforts to try to take guns away from people you know, who pose threats to themselves or to others. So I'm not a surprise there. Again, I think this is an issue that resonates, I think, exceedingly well with a lot of Minnesotans, certainly not all of them, but especially, I think, with part of the core constituency of the Democratic Party, including suburban women. So I am, I am not at all surprised that it's clear to committee. I won't be surprised if it actually passes the House, um, but I would be stunned if it even gets a hearing in the Minnesota Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. Right. And, and the, the committee chairmen in, in the Senate if they don't want to give it a hearing, they don't have to because they, they, they're, they're, the, they're the people in the position of power. And basically that's all but what Senator Paul Kozelka, who is the majority leader in the Senate, the Republican majority leader, has said. Let's break it down, though. Uh, although the majority in the Senate, in the Minnesota Senate, is not that big. It's three votes. And, you know, I, I wonder – and let me ask you this – do you think there are some senators who are looking at what happened in the House in November, the House which flipped from Republican control to Democratic control, and I wonder if they're saying, geez, we might be vulnerable the next time? Because remember, the Senate wasn't up at all in November. Yeah. I, yes, but two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was a special election um, in, a, in a Minnesota Senate seat um, that Senator Lowry uh, had stepped down to take a job with the Waltz administration. It's been a reliable Democratic Senate seat for, I'm going to say, at least 20, 25 years, and it flipped Republican. And it's kind of in more of a rural area. And the reason why I say that is that when that seat flipped from Republican or from Democrat to Republican, I think it took away what's called the credible threat. And what I mean by that is that Democrats, I think, were banking on the idea of saying to, let's say, about a 
three or four or five maybe Republicans in the suburbs that if you don't go along with things like gun control, um, we're coming after you in 2020 and we're going to flip your seats. Well, now what we have is a situation where you have Republicans can say, well, fine, if you come after our suburban Republicans, we're going after some rural Democrats. And I wouldn't be surprised if we were to see, even this year, some rural Democrats, such as, for example, in the Senate, um, Tom Bach, for example, the Senate minority leader, um, coming from more of the Iron Range area, say that I'm not going to support some of this gun legislation because this is not where my constituents are. So so I'm not sure the Democrats have that credible threat right now. Uh, Let me ask you about these two bills, because they're going to be debated quite a bit. Universal background checks, expanding background checks, that's pretty easy to understand. To me, that's pretty black and white. Uh, The other bill, the red flag bill, there were a lot of questions raised about this. And what this bill would do is allow loved ones or police to petition a judge to take away somebody's guns because they oppose a danger to themselves or to others. And there were a lot of questions about how this is going to work. And I thought many of those questions were, were pretty significant. You're the constitutional law professor. Does this, can this work? This, well, well, in theory, yes. And I'm going to do a parallel here is that we know right now that individuals who pose a danger themselves to others can be involuntarily committed. Um, um, but it's still through a, a court. And it's not an easy process. Not an easy it's process. Not an easy process. Yeah, if anybody say, out there is listening who's, who's tried to deal with it, and I think many people have, it's very difficult when you're dealing with somebody who's mentally ill. It is. This is a free country, at least we hope it is, and, and there's enormous burdens on the government before it can just what it can just say somebody has to be detained um, you know for for their own protection or protection of others and it ought to be that way I mean darn well it ought to be that way and now take the fact that the right to bear arms is a fundamental right under the Constitution um, I think you're going to face similar um, enormous burdens on the part of the government or upon others to be able to do this. And so it's not going to be easy. And a process that allows for this, um, again, given uh, the constitutional protections associated with guns, um, is, 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 is going to be difficult um, to be able to, um, to execute. Right. And, 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 you know, apparently there are penalties, uh, you know, for making a false claim, but you can almost envision something where, you know, a, a couple is, you know, their marriage is deteriorating and, and the husband says, well, you know, my wife Susan has a gun and she's mentally unstable and needs to be taken away. And Susan can come back and say, well, that's just he's just upset because I'm leaving him for another man. I mean, you, you, you could see all those kinds of scenarios almost, um, you know, playing out. That being said, you look at some of these horrible shootings and mass shootings and there have been warning signs, and, and people have tried to get the guns taken away, and, and it, it hasn't worked. And there are versions of this in other states. Apparently there's a version in Indiana. There were critics at the hearing that I was at and a tape I saw that said that the Indiana bill has a lot less teeth in it than the one that's being proposed here. But it, it's, it's an argument that on the surface you say, well, of course we don't want somebody who's acting in a, in a – threatening way or or seems to be ready to harm themselves to have a gun. 
But then you figure out how, how exactly are we going to determine that? Well, you're absolutely right. And it's important to note that you know, we've become, in the last few years, fixated on mass shootings, forgetting the fact that guns are used um, in very high percentages for both committing suicide, that is harm to self, and are oftentimes um, used very frequently in, let's say, domestic assault matters. Um, a gun in a house is far more likely to be used against somebody else in the house than it is to be used for self-defense against an intruder. And so there are, there are clearly um, important considerations in wanting to be able to figure out, if we're talking about gun violence, how to address these, these other issues. And there's sort of a, I think, a stereotype out there that we think that um, everybody um, who uses a gun or lots of people who misuse guns, it's all about what? perhaps mental illnesses, and that if we just screen for mental illnesses, um, then we can address some of the problems of gun violence. The fact of the matter is, not everybody who has a mental illness is dangerous, and not everybody who's dangerous um, um, has been screened or is actually mentally ill. Uh, well, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be very tough to pass, especially, you know, the, the Minnesota Republican-controlled Senate, especially with that seat that you mentioned, the, the Lowry seat, that, that Republicans did manage to uh, pick up. And, and I would think that Republicans probably feel emboldened by that. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Let me ask you about another situation that's going to be talked about, uh, emergency funding for MinLars. Uh, Republicans, senators have a bunch of hearings on this on Monday. Uh, they must be licking their chops because they, they want to put this all on the Dayton administration. They do, but putting it on the Dayton administration right now doesn't do them that much good. They need to put it onto the um, the Waltz administration uh, because, in some sense, you know, we're what we're in our second month now, barely into our third month of the Waltz administration. Waltz can still say at this point that yes, I inherited a problem from the previous administration. I'm trying to fix it. I need some money to do it. Um, he doesn't quite own it yet. He has a credible argument if the Republicans don't, don't give him some resources. Um, and so at some point, I think from a strategic point of view, the Republicans have to give the Waltz administration something, give him, a, give him some opportunity to try to address this. Um, and then, then if something doesn't work out, they can what? They can go after him. On the other hand, if Minlars continues to be a problem, Republicans don't support reasonable requests from the Waltz administration for funding to solve the problem. It's going to be easy to push this back onto the Republicans. Right. Another thing that it does look like will happen is some kind of hands-free bill, some kind of distracted driving legislation. I think that is going to happen this session. I think so too. I think that I think there is a pretty good consensus on this at this point. I think you have the law enforcement community. You have lots of people who are recognizing the fact that that this is a serious problem in Minnesota. And, and so I agree. And also I was going to say is that this is a piece of legislation that, relatively speaking, doesn't cost any money. Um, yes, there's going to be some additional enforcement costs from routine stopping by police and that, but we're not looking at a, lay, a, a layout of money um, in terms of what the legislature has to do. And that gets me to the other big issue this week was the fact that the fiscal forecast came in, and it's a half a billion yes. dollars less than what it was assumed to be um, back in November. Right, and, and 
you know, revenues are, are simply a, a lot less. And that, that, that paints a very different picture, which the Republicans are using to, to ask for a scaling back of the wall's budget. You're absolutely right. And we actually look at it, if we actually look at the budget correctly, because we still have this stupid law in the books that says, for the purposes of inflation, revenues are considered, but um, obligations are not. With that $1 billion surplus, if we actually factor in inflation for everything, um, that's $1.1 billion. We really have, what, no surplus at this point. We're probably somewhere around breaking even. All right. How about the, the pledge quickly, uh, you know, for Republicans and Democrats to get everything wrapped up and deadlines starting in place in April? Is that going to happen? I'm skeptical. <laughs> I think I think every 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 biennial we hear people say we're going to wrap this up early. We're going to get it all done. Um, the divide is so big at this point. We, I mean, think about it. The Waltz administration is banking on um, a twenty cent gallon tax increase. It wants to. The extension or the reason, and, and the Senate Republicans are saying no way. No way. They also want a couple of other taxes to go to help pay for infrastructure. The Waltz administration wants a large bonding bill, and it wants a renewal of the seven hundred million dollar medical provider tax. Republicans are saying no on all of those things. Um, the, the Waltz administration and the Republicans are very, very far apart um, on on let's say the tax bill and spending priorities. Um, if it gets done. On time by the what is it the the third Monday was it was the, the third Monday after what is it was the first Monday after the third it's May twentieth yeah, yeah. May twentieth just trying to think what the Constitution yeah. actually says we'll, we'll have to come up with a little bet on that that's right side yeah. bet yeah yeah my okay. bet, my bet is it's not going to happen <laughs> okay David Schultz thank you so much have a wonderful evening same with you good night all all right folks uh, thank you so much for listening I just want to give a shout out to Jonathan Lowe our fabulous studio coordinator and producer, and also a big, big shout-out to uh, the producer of this show as well, David Josephson. Uh, thank you so much for listening, folks. Please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. I'll be anchoring as along with Mike Augustinak. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 